You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. My name is Sarah New. I'm the community director on the executive council at Forefront New York City Church. Speaking now to a room of about seven. And I think, so thank you all for being here in person as well. Uh, but I know most of you are watching online right now. Let me just move this around. Um, so uh, tithing is something that um, some of us grew up in the church. I know not everyone did. But for those of you who, to get you up to speed a little bit, uh, not that it's probably good that you missed out on that, but um, it's a practice of giving a percentage of income to church. I've never heard of 20% before, Mac. That seems like a really steep number. Uh, even 10% is cutting it for, uh, and kind of, it's basically impossible for a lot of people, especially people who live in New York City. But, you know, my parents did about 10%. And the way I recalled it kind of growing up was my parents would sort of do it because it was the right thing to do, the Bible said so. But also, I think it was sort of treated like an investment fund. Like you know, the verse where God, uh, scriptures promise that God will give you back um, multifold whatever you give to God. So I kind of feel like it was, it was like betting. You know, you would give, but then you would kind of wink at God and just be like, I know you would give it back with interest, right? <laughs> like that was like sort of the attitude and the incentive behind tithing, I think. Um, so one of our core values at Forefront is to try to reimagine worship. And worship ranges from, you know, theological concepts to singing to liturgical practices. Um, like communion and also like giving. And tithing is the liturgical practice I want to examine um, with us today. And so when we usually try to do this, you know, reimagine or rethink a core um, practice or concept, we always want to start at forefront by looking at this uh, historically or in the scriptural context. So I'm going to spend the first half of my sermon doing that. And then I'll kind of try to tease up present implications for our church. So, and if, if you're watching this the first time, you're like, oh, giving a little, don't worry, this doesn't apply to you. Um, this is just for everyone else. But I hope you get something out of it, regardless if you're new or you've been here for a little while. So, tithing um, is something that we read a lot about in the Hebrew scriptures and the Hebrew Bible, and it takes place in the context of Israel, which is an agrarian, predominantly economy and society. And so, money usually isn't a thing that is being talked about, it's about harvest. You're supposed to take a tenth of your harvest and set it aside every year for a greater good. Now, what's interesting is that, um, well, two things. Uh, One is the agricultural cycle occurs every seven years because on the seventh year, the land is supposed to lie fallow. It's supposed to rest. It's called a Sabbath for the land, which I think is very cool. Um, And then you begin planting again on the eighth year. So within those seven years, though, you're actually supposed to give three different types of tithes. Um, how many of you sort of knew that? I, I learned that actually just by, by doing the sermon. So uh, I want to break down those three tithes for, you, for us all today. The first tithe is going to be the one we're the most familiar with. is a tithe to the priests. So the priest is um, priest slash the tribe of Levi. Um, for the purpose of the sermon, I'm just going to kind of combine them into one. Um, we think of priests as the pe- people who do like the temple ceremonies, the sacrifices, and all that stuff. And they definitely do that. But they also judge. So if there's a dispute between neighbors... Um, you go to the priest and you say, what is the will of God? What is the commandments of God? How do we apply uh, God's commandments to this situation and case? And in fact, actually, 
we might think of the ceremonial stuff as separate from the political actions like judging, but really they're all one and the same because what is political is also what's religious and vice versa. Because if the priests do not conduct the ceremonies correctly, it will impact um, the whole community, it will impact the nation. So what they do, in some ways I would argue, is equivalent to what our governors do what our state house of representatives, because um, their decisions impact the whole nation. They're acting on behalf of the nation. They judge, what have you. Um, so uh, the thing with the priests, though, and the, and the Levites who kind of assist the priests, is that they do not have land. There's no inheritance of property. Because when the, um, all the tribes kind of get segments of the land when they enter the promised land, the priests get no segments. Um, and so because of that, they, and you might think land, does that mean they're homeless? What does that mean? Um, it means a variety of things, but most important of which, they don't have the means to grow food. And so how do they sustain themselves? The rest of the tribes give them a tenth of their harvest so that they can eat blah, blah, blah. So you could, I would essentially see this first type of tithe as a kind of uh, equivalent of modern day taxes, if that makes sense. All right, are we all with, with me, this tracking, you're seeing some stuff, like why am I giving the church and paying taxes? Seems like I'm <laughs> being redundant here, but no worries, I'll, I'll get to kind of like why this matters a bit more. The second type of tithe is so interesting, if I just told you right now, you wouldn't believe me, so I'm just gonna read it out loud. Do we have the, the, the um, slides for this one? Because I know this one, the slides got. Um, Yes, this is the correct one. Excellent. You shall set aside every year a tenth of the yield of your sowing that is brought from the field. You shall consume the tithes of your new grain and wine and oil and the firstlings, I love that word, firstlings, of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God, in the place where God will choose to establish their name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God forever. So just to break it down, sometimes words is a lot. God's saying, you gotta set aside a tenth of your harvest so that you can consume it in a holy place. So this is a bit strange, right? What kind of tithing is this? It's, it's not tithing to give, it's tithing to consume. And just, so just sit with it a bit longer. And so you have to do it in the presence of the Lord your God, so it means a temple, you should enjoy some, so you have to travel and consume your harvest in that area. Um, now God is, is very considerate, because look at this next verse. Should the distance be too great from you, should you be unable to transport them because the place where the Lord your God has chosen to establish God's name, essentially the temple in Jerusalem, is far from you, and because the Lord your God has blessed you, you may convert them into money. Wrap up the money and take it with you to the place that the Lord your God has chosen and spend the money on anything you want, cattle, sheep, wine, or any other intoxicant, and anything you may desire. And you shall feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with his household. So I love these passages because to my mind, it's all, it, I think it's about holy joy. It's about um, God commanding Israel to set aside a tenth of the harvest um, so, so that they can feast and rejoice together in community of everyone, the whole nation gathered together in the holy temple. Um, and so you can see, and, and I love how God's like, you know, if it's too heavy to carry, just convert it to money and then like spend it on whatever you desire, wine, meat, intoxicants. Um, which is certainly a very different you know, picture of tithing than we usually get. Um, so the way, so you notice the word tithe is used multiple, multiple times. It's like, what does this word tithe even mean now? And it's almost starting to look like budgeting. <laughs> like God's like, you gotta set aside 10% for taxes, 10% for family fun. Um, you know, like I, it's almost like, seems like what's, that's what's going on here. 
Let's look at the third tithe and see if it completes the picture or if it just brings up more questions. Um, Deuteronomy 14, 27, 29. Uh, Every third year, you shall bring out the full tithe of your yield of that year, but leave it within your settlements. Then the Levite, who has no hereditary portion as you have, and the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow in your settlements shall come and eat their fill. So notice the people who are named, the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. And probably the most famous widow uh, in the Bible is Ruth. And if you, if, let me know the story. When she comes, she's a widow, so she and her mother-in-law, she has no land. So she has no way to feed herself and her mother-in-law. So what she does is she goes and gleans the fields of landowners, like Boaz, who's also the name of my cat. Um, and then, but glean is it's a particular kind of term. It's not like you just like, Gleaning. I don't know. Who even knows what gleaning means? Gleaning is a, actually a technical term that means you're harvesting the leftover crops that have been left behind, that have not been picked through once the workers of the landowner have gone through. And in fact, God commands um, landowners to leave the edges of the field unharvested, and if they take an olive tree, to just shake out the olives once, not twice, to leave extras for gleaners to come through. So this category is a stranger, fatherless, and widow are essentially people who lack the means by which to grow and feed themselves on their own sustenance. I was reading about gleaning, and someone said it's the modern day equivalent of dumpster diving. People who are collecting cans, pushing the carts down the street, what have you, people who don't have the means to sustain themselves. And so what's really interesting is the third tithe, remember I met the seven-year cycle? It happens every three years. So the first two tithes happen um, on the first, second, fourth, and fifth year. This tithe happens on the third and sixth year. So this tithe actually replaces the tithe to the priests. It replaces, um, I think, even the fund tithe, but I'm going to double check on that one. But, but the point is that zooming out, you see in the seven-year cycle this kind of balancing between tithing and saving uh, so you can spend for yourself, saving so you can give to, as essentially taxes to your political and religious representatives, and also um, taking a tenth and giving it to those who don't have the same resources as staying yourselves. So it's kind of an interesting kind of balancing um, budget thing. And if the takeaway of the sermon is that you want to go over your budget, that's great too. Um, you know, we have a personal finance group um, that Foxy leads. She also runs Kinship Cafe, forefrontnyc.com slash cafe, which is a Zoom thing we do after service. And you can go to our groups page to learn more about it. But uh, so I could technically end here, but I do think there's also a deeper spiritual meaning, which actually is kind of my, maybe the climax of the sermon, who knows? I'll let you decide. Um, De- Deuteronomy 26. So uh, unfortunately, the slides didn't make it uh, in passage from my brain to the slides, but uh, also I'm just going to read them out loud. And, but because there are no slides, I decided to bring a visual. Um, so this is my basket of harvest. Um, so here's the slides. Uh, when, with the verse. When you enter the land that the Lord your God is giving you as a heritage and you possess it and settle it, you shall take some of every first fruit of the soil which you harvest in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, put it in a basket, and go to the place where the Lord your God will choose to establish God's name. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting my harvest in the basket. I have two bunnies, sorry. Um, for those of us, for your pet bunnies, it's just all I could find in the kid stuff basement. Um, flowers, I have some marshmallows, uh, Chex Mix, and black tea. So I'm taking this and I'm bringing this basket to the priest. Here's what's supposed to happen. There's a very set, actually, ritual for what I, I don't just kind of hand it over and be like, see ya. Um, 
So um, when I go to the priest, and just keep in mind as a backstory that this happens only after the Israelites enter the promised land. So God's kind of giving all these commandments as prep, but they're still wandering in the desert. There's no like harvesting to be done. Um, so it's when you enter the promised land, then you start tithing. Anyhow, so you shall go to the priest in charge of the time and say to the him, because usually a man, I acknowledge this day before the Lord your God that I've entered the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to assign to us. So this is the first thing I say. Then the priest uh, takes the basket from my hand and sets it down in front of the altar. I'll put it here, sorry, Jeff, move it later. Um, and then I have to recite this prayer. It's a pretty cool prayer. Um, my father was a fugitive Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there. But there he became a greater and very populous nation. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. We cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our plea, saw our plight, our misery, and our oppression. The Lord freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, and awesome power, and by signs and portals. God brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Wherefore, I now bring the first fruits of this soil which you, O Lord, have gave me. It's kind of a beautiful prayer, right? A prayer of, of kind of what it means to enter the land, to harvest the first fruits. And I love this prayer because it begins with my father, who was a fugitive Aramean, and suddenly it goes from first person and goes to plural, like you have um, brought us to this land, the transition from the personal collective story. Um, and Rabbi Shai Held um, says that it's important that this, uh, this liturgy of gratitude is set up because it ensures that Israel does not take the land they've entered into for granted. But this is something they don't feel entitled to. Like, I've always had it, my parents have it. But they, even generations down the line, have to always recite where they came from and where they are now and who uh, to be grateful for. And so you can see this quote from Rabbi uh, Held, the more the memory of landless wandering begins to fade, the more likely it is that Israel will take God's gifts for granted. And so Moses introduces liturgy designed to combat ingratitude and forgetfulness. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that the practice of gratitude, giving, and prayer um, is, is, is really about a practice of seeing the things you possess. Um, in our case, usually money, not usually harvest, or the apartment you have, possessions you have, as gifts as opposed to things that you are entitled to or things that you own, own, if that makes sense. And so when, um, after you give your tithe, you're, you set your basket for the priest, you're then supposed to, I'm going to quote again from Deuteronomy, leave it before the Lord your God and bow low before um, God, and you shall enjoy together with the Levite and the stranger in your midst all the bounty that the Lord your God has bestowed upon you and your household. So right after the prayer of gratitude and giving to the priest, you're supposed to then enjoy uh, the bounty together with the Levite and the stranger. It's interesting, the Levite and the stranger in your midst. Um, and I sort of didn't realize it until I was writing a sermon, but today is the first uh, day of Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And I've said enough about this on Sunday service in some ways, but I think it's a good month to be reflecting on how we treat the other in our midst, how we treat the stranger, the foreigner. And so uh, the practice of generosity and then sharing, I think, uh, of gratitude and, and then sharing makes a lot of sense because uh, if, you, if you understand what you have as gifts and not possessions, then generosity and sharing is a kind of logical next step. Um, and the key part, I think, is, you, is that you're giving not just because you're nice, because other people need it, but because truly what you have 
is not yours, it's God's, and if God is in everyone, and God loves and cares about everyone as much as you are, then technically everything you have is collectively ours, collectively a whole communities. And so I think fundamentally what it means to reimagine tithing or giving is, is to give because we have been given. It's really as simple as that. Um, but practically, what, what does it mean for our church uh, in particular? And I think what I said can apply to all kinds of giving. Most Jews today actually take tithing to mean giving to charity, which might include the synagogue, but not necessarily. Um, and so uh, just because, as, as Mackenzie said, we are in the middle of a giving campaign, I'm going to kind of connect the dots back to our church. So uh, I know we're, if, you're, like I said, if you're new, we do this like two to three times a year where we're like looking at the giving numbers, like time for a giving sermon. Um, and so, so that's basically why I'm here. Anyhow, you might be thinking, if you're watching us for a little while, didn't we just do a fundraising campaign over Christmas? Didn't we raise like $20,000 more than our goals? Yes, it, it was great. It was amazing. We spent about $14,000 of that and saved about uh, $26,000. Um, we were able to do a bunch of things, give $2,000 away to Ruth's Refuge, uh, one of our community partners. We were able to give about $1,600 to Faith in New York, uh, a multi-faith justice organizing faith collective um, that is actually hosting a, a mayoral forum today at 3 o'clock. Um, you can sign up for it in, in the comments. Uh, Mackenzie already put the comment in the... Okay, cool. Um, and, and we were able to uh, pay, finally, uh, Sean, our marketing director, who had been almost doing it for free, basically, and help kind of coordinate our social media campaigns and get our content to like the, the whole nation and the world. Um, and we were almost also able to save a lot of that money. The thing is, most of you don't know this, but I don't know if it's true for other nonprofits. It's the first like, nonprofit I've worked in. But for 10 months of the year, we run a deficit. And then the two months of the year, we kind of make it up by like, doing a mega campaign. Uh, and I think maybe that's probably pretty normal. But it causes like a lot of stress for the 10 months, essentially. Uh, and our staff ranges from like a little stressed to like very stressed. Um, and, and, and it's all relieved once a campaign is done, but it's sort of cyclical. That's why you kind of keep coming back, if that makes sense. And um, thankfully, we were able to save that, that 6000 because you know, we were able to make up the deficit for the past four, uh, past four months. But now that we're back in this space, uh, physical space, we're going from paying 60% of rent to 100% of rent. Rent's about like 8,800 something a month. Um, and so, you know, our deficit is a bit larger now, and we kind of got to make up some ground. But the thing is, I would love to just stabilize our giving pattern. So we're not just like, you know, and then back, what have you. And the main way of doing that is if more people gave reoccurring gifts. That's it. Um, a lot of you basically are reoccurring givers. You give, you put in your Venmo handle, and you do it every week or every month super reliably, and that's great. Uh, we're just asking if you'd be willing to just automate it, because unless it's automated, it's really hard for our board, when thinking about the year in the next six months, how to plan, who we want to hire, uh, what we want, changes we want to make. If, if the money is not reoccurring, we cannot count on it, and so we cannot plan because of it. Um, and so some of us, and a lot of us, our income is irregular. You know, I, I work part-time, I'm a freelancer outside of that, I totally understand it. What I usually do is I set a sort of low amount on a recurring level and I sort of top it off if I happen to make more money that month or not. And so, you know, there's more logistics, go to forefrontnyc.com slash give, you can do weekly, monthly, annually, quarterly. We're, we're definitely not a 10% stickler, it's just whatever makes sense for you, $15 a month, that's totally fine, you can cancel any time. Um, and all that is important, but I do want to kind of address the sort of elephant in the room, which is like, so what? You know, why 
why not let it all go down? You know, why necessarily invest in a church and in an institution when more and more people are leaving churches, more and more people are leaving institutions at large? It's sort of archaic in a certain way to be giving to church, to an institution. And, you know, it's also kind of a question you might be asking after I've gone through that little history lesson, because you might be saying, well, okay, we have an actual government now. The church is not, you know, a government. We, we have actual safety nets. Why the church? And I have a couple answers. I think one answer is that, yes, we do luckily have public safety nets and a government, but people still fall through the cracks. Um, last year, we raised about $20,000 for our Clarity and Crisis Fund, which you can still donate to. You can still make a recurring gift to. Um, and we're able to help people who um, don't have a social security number, so we did not get a stimulus check from the government. We were able to help people who did not receive unemployment because last year's wages were paid in cash, and so they didn't have the documentation to receive unemployment from the government. Um, and even you know, beyond like actually just giving people money, I think the church as an institution is able to act almost as a social lubricant for giving, if that makes sense. Um, like a few days ago, a congregant, or last week I think, posted just on our Facebook group, which anyone's invited to join, and it was like, really tough situation, explained it all. And a lot of people responded saying, how can I pray for you? How can we be helpful beyond prayer? And she was like, I, I actually just need money. But then the conversation sort of ended there because it's a bit too awkward. People didn't know like what the next step was. Is it a GoFundMe? Is it a Venmo handle? And I noticed it a few days later that the conversation had stopped. And you know, I just rewrote as a church saying, hey, if you would like to help this person out, just give it to our church Venmo handle and we'll make sure all the funds go to her. And I, you know, I sent people a receipt so they could see that the funds did eventually reach her. And just in a matter of seven hours, we raised close to $500. Um, and certainly the will to help was not something that church as an institution did. The church as a people, you all were willing to help. But the institutional infrastructure helps make it easier, if that makes sense. Helps translate the willingness to help to like actually helping. But more sort of to the point, the, the core of our Sunday expenses, of our church expenses, are what happens on Sunday services. You know, from the cameras that beam us into your living rooms today to the rent that's here to, you know, hiring important skilled musicians to sing and paying people to come on stage to preach or sing or worship, what have you. Um, and so I wanted to ask the question, why fund the church? You sort of have to also answer the question, why fund Sunday services to begin with? And it's a good question, and it's something I, I always like to respond when people ask me that, like, why go to church? Um, beyond the kind of the obvious things, so to speak, is I think when we worship together, and when we sang the songs with Bryn or with Angela just now, I think we are reminded that we are more than just brains, that we are bodies full of grief, full of laughter, full of sorrow, that need to emanate out. Sorry about that, Steve. Uh, emanate out in song. And when we like, take communion, for instance, we are reminded that we are one flesh and blood, no matter what the latest news headlines might say about who we are to each other. And when we give, we're reminded that our lives themselves are gifts um, from the Creator. And so I would like to challenge us to think about giving as an act, as a liturgical act, as an act of worship that shapes us, that spiritually forms us. Um, in the same way that prayer and worship does as well. Now, the, the, the downside of this automated thingamajig is that it's automated and you technically don't have to think about it, but you do get an email confirmation every time the money leaves your bank and get, goes into Forefront's bank. So I'd encourage you to, to write a prayer. And when you get that email confirmation, 
and a prayer of gratitude that you might read out loud or you might just read to yourself when you get the email. And that prayer can be your adaptation of my father was a fugitive Aramean um, that you know, we read. So I'm going to read out my version of it, which I do kind of actually say to myself sometimes when I'm in the space. Um, and for those of you who don't know my backstory, I kind of grew up queer in a conservative church. I, not going to go through it again and explain the story, but, uh, but I was reflecting the other day on um, my, my senior year in college. I was in a little Christian fellowship at university, and they were asking me, like, what your prayer, what my prayer request was, and I was like, um, I think I want more, like, joy, and I think that was, like, repeated, re the repeating request I had uh, during my time in college. And that, that's not the prayer request I have these days. I actually feel like I have a, a reservoir of joy. And I was reflecting on a number of prayer requests, like my back pain and sleep and stuff like that. But I was reflecting on what has changed, you know, between my senior year and, and now. And the way I, I think I, I realized that, you know, growing up in the conservative church, some of the most deepest experiences of euphoric joy I had, experience of falling in love, of being loved back, um, were sort of deemed toxic or poisonous by the church. I grew up in, by the church community I was a part of. And so if the deepest joy I felt was somehow bad, then what kind of joy could I possibly aspire to have? I think that was kind of what was going on behind um, my prayer request. So I'm going to, as backstory, now I'm going to read out the prayer I think I wrote um, in this you know, space, in this like roulette land. Uh, my father was a, a minister. My family grew up in a conservative church uh, in a capitalist society that taught me and all of us uh, how to beat ourselves up mentally and emotionally for failing to do the right things, for failing to believe or feel the right things, taught ourselves to deal with ourselves harshly and pose a heavy labor upon us. But the Lord heard my plea. The Lord heard our plea and saw our plight, our misery and our oppression the Lord freed us from Egypt by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm and awesome power, by science importance. He has brought us to this place. He has brought us to this land flowing with milk and honey. Wherefore, I now bring the first fruits of this land, of the soil which you, O Lord, have given me. And I stand here today with, I think, as Jesus says in the book of John, a joy that no one can ever take away. So I think this church has saved my belief in church, so to speak. It has salvaged and saved my belief in institutions and what power it can have when it works for good instead of for bad. And if this church has been a vessel of the gifts of God to you, I ask that you commit to a regular rhythm of giving, of gratitude, and prayer. And if you are not in a position to give and you actually in a position where you need help, please let us know. Um, we'll always drop a link every Sunday service with our link to our care team and our email addresses. Um, let us pray together. Dear God, I thank you that we are standing, whether in the roulette or in our living rooms or wherever we are now, um, in, in, we are standing in a land that you have blessed us with. Um, we are standing, obviously, on um, a land of, people, of indigenous peoples who, um, who, have, who have for so long uh, kept the wisdom and, and sort of... Um, retain the wisdom of respecting land, of respecting the rhythms of gratitude and giving, and we repent of the ways in which um, we have kind of worked in the opposite direction. We've worked to maximize productivity and profits from our land. And God, we, we begin our repentance by saying that everything we have from us today, everything we possess today is a gift. 
And may that motivate us to be generous in how we share and give to one another. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.